Good day. This is, I am recording now on January 1st, 2020. It is now 2020. Um, this is the continued, ser continued series of introduction to Lutheranism, what we believe as Lutherans, uh, kind of serving as a sort of a catechesis, a catechism class on YouTube for people or an aid, whatever you may want to call it. And so we are working our way through the creed. Today, we are on the second article of the Apostles' Creed. So I'm going to pull that up here. This is the um, Luther's Small and Large Catechism. And so uh, let me get to the page here. So the second article, the so the first article of the creed dealt with God the Father, dealt with creation. The second article of the creed deals with redemption and salvation. And so it says, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to go to the meaning quite yet. And we're going to walk through this. So first off, there is, I'm going to talk about there. All right, so. What this part of the creed is all about is who is Jesus? Who is he? Who is the second person of the Trinity? Now, I encourage you, obviously, to read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, as a good primer on a lot of this. But so it says that, and in Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. So that's the very first words. We believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? This is a very... Um, prudent question to ask today of all days, January 1st. Traditionally, the church on January 1st has commemorated um, what is known as the circumcision in the naming of Jesus. And so it's a day that we do focus on the name of Jesus. What does the name Jesus mean? Well, the place we're going to go to here, I'm going to pull it up here on my iPad, is Matthew chapter 1. And it is verse number, verse 21. So chapter 1, verse 21. She, referring to Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right there. Okay, so understand first off that Jesus is the Greek rendering of Jesus' name. And this is something you'll see a lot in the Bible, is you'll have Greek names and you'll have... Um, Aramaic names, a prime example of this would be Peter. Uh, Peter is the Greek name. Uh, his Aramaic name would be uh, Cephas. And so similarly, Jesus is a Greek name for Yeshua. Yeshua is his um, Hebrew name. And, or in English, you hear the English version is Joshua. So it literally means... Yahweh saves. And that is what his name means. And it tells you everything about what he came to be. It's and right there in the text. It says, she will bear, so this is the angel speaking to Joseph, that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he's called Jesus because he is going to save his people from their sins. Because Yahweh is going to save his people from their sins. And Jesus is Yahweh. And I talked about this a couple videos ago. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So he ascribes that name to himself. Um, so like I said, very fitting that we're talking about this on January, on a recording, when I'm recording on January 1st. Uh, January 1st, eight days after Christmas. As, as is the Hebraic law, he was circumcised, and his name was given, the name of Jesus, given by the angel. Christ, 
Christ is not his last name. If anything, you, probably the closest thing to a, last names are actually, I, it'd be really it'd be a really interesting study to look into. I'm sure somebody knows somewhere they could probably tell me right off the bat um, when last names really came into existence. But um, last names were a pretty late arrival. Um, but you'd have things like you'd have descriptors. If they're not really last names, it was just ways to help you to know who you're talking about. So, like, for example, you had Mary Magdalene. Um, that was just to say that she was Mary of Magdala. So Magdala is the town that she was from. So Jesus would probably be more properly Jesus or Yeshua Nazarene. Uh, he's Je Jesus of Nazareth, um, as that old movie was called. Uh, Christ is a title, not a last name, but title. Christ means anointed one. So in other words, Jesus is anointed by God. Um, for a purpose. And as we know from his name, he is anointed for the purpose of saving his, saving his people from their sins. So he, his only son, so God's only son, uh, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he is our, he is our Lord. Now this is, Lord is an interesting phrase, an interesting word. Because Lord does not necessarily have to mean God. We think it always does. And part of the reason problem with this is in the Old Testament, when you see Lord in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, in all caps, that is supposed that is always Yahweh. But Lord does not always have to refer to Yahweh. It could be Adonai, the Hebrew word Adonai, or the Greek word Adonai, um, which just refers to generic Lord or overseer. Um, or master type thing. And so somebody could use this as they see he doesn't mean God, but much of the early church understood Jesus to be God. And I talked about this quite a bit two videos ago about how you could actually go into the arguments that Jesus is God, right? So when we say he's Lord, that's not saying that he's just a master. He is God. Uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So... Um, that comes straight from the Gospels here. So I'm reading here John again, still in Matthew, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, divorcing uh, Mary quietly, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So that's where it comes from. So the scriptures straight up say it's from the Holy Spirit. All right. So born of the Virgin Mary. Now this is a source of dispute amongst Christians, um, between liberals and conservative Christians. Now they'll say, well, the biggest argument. So right there in Matthew, it quotes from Isaiah chapter 7. And it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So the argument goes, well, the word virgin, and so I'm going to pull this up on my Bible here. So this is Isaiah 7, verse 14. And so the Hebrew word, which is virgin, so the Hebrew word arma, which means virgin, can also be translated as young woman, maid, or newly married. And so they're like, see, it doesn't mean virgin when Isaiah said it. But here's the problem. There's first, here's the first logical problem. To give a prophecy, so the word could mean either thing. It could mean virgin or it could mean young woman. But saying that a young newly married maid or woman could give birth to a child isn't really much of a prophecy. Young women give birth all the time. It's like, hey, what do you hear, prophecy? Someone's going to drink water this week. So? People drink water all the time. People, women have give birth. That's not much of a prophecy. All right? 
And here's the other problem with that understanding. So we're gonna I'm gonna jump to so uh, so I pull it out here. Right here, this is the Septuaginta. Uh, the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the of the Holy Bible. And so I'm going to move to go to Isaiah. Here, I'm, okay, I'm going to just cheat. I'm going to use my I'm going to cheat and I'm going to use my um, my iPad because it's quicker. So Septuagint, I'm right here in the Septuagint. And I'm going to jump to Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14. So Isaiah 7, verse 14. Or sorry, was that the right verse? I apologize here. I'm trying to make sure I get the right verse. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Isaiah 7, verse 14. And as you look at it, The Greek word that is translated as um, young woman is Parthenos. That Greek word, the Greek word they use is Parthenos. And Parthenos always means virgin. All right, so that's what Parthenos means in the Greek. So this is what is used in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, they use the Greek word Parthenos, which means virgin. And by the way, when we are reading out of uh, Matthew, when Matthew is quoting this verse, he is quoting probably from the Septuagint. And so they understood it to be virgin. And the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew that was translated well before the birth of Jesus. So the Hebrews understood it to be virgin. And it also makes more sense when you get into Luke chapter 2, where or Luke chapter 1, sorry, and Mary says, how can this be regarding your pregnancy since I am a virgin? That doesn't make sense to ask that question. If she's just saying, how can this be since I am a young woman? Young women can get pregnant, but virgins don't normally get pregnant. And so, not under natural circumstances. And so, the scriptures are very strong that she was a virgin. And the denial of the idea that she was a virgin is a, is a rejection of the authority of scripture. Or is to say that scripture was an error, right? So she's so again, it's, so it continues. It says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, this is a very this is an interesting little detail in the gospel, in the creed. It talks about that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So and this is actually an important detail because it is letting you know that it happened within the context of history. Pontius Pilate is a person you could find records of him historically. You could read about him from the works from various historical figures to show that he indeed was a person that existed. And there's now archaeological evidence. In the time that the creed was written, obviously, they, Pontius Pilate would have been much more familiar to the people who are hearing it. But for us, in our modern day, it's still helpful to hear it. It's a reminder that all the stuff that we're talking about when it comes to everything in the scriptures, we're not talking about a fairy tale. We're not talking about like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, you know, stories. You know, I love those movies, but they're fiction. The Bible isn't fiction. It's something we are claiming, confessing, believing that this happened within the context of history. So this happened in a real place, in a real time, and confessing that he suffered under Pontius Pilate is a confession that this happened in history, right? So, and that's why I identify specifically Pontius Pilate by name, to let you know this is not a matter of myth, but a matter of history. 
He was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead. Okay, so he crucified, died, buried, and rose from the dead. You could, that is very well attested in um, at the conclusion of all four Gospels that he was crucified, died, buried, risen. Um, it is well attested throughout the scriptures that he's crucified, died, buried, and risen. Uh, there are the, but here's the thing you got to remember is he was physically risen from the dead. Um, the key rather than just a um, spiritual resurrection, which is sometimes is claimed. People will say, well, he, he's a lot, he's alive in my heart or he's kind of alive, but he's not physically alive. But let's see here. So this is uh, Matthew 28, verse 9. It says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, so this is after his resurrection, he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet. So in other words, they're letting you know that there's a physical body. So that's for evidence number one of physical, the physicality of his resurrection. Uh, we're going to jump to cha Luke chapter 24. As they were talking, so this is verse 36, as they were talking, the disciples, about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still dis they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And the point of that fish was there to they handed it to him, so he grabbed hold of it, and he ate it. If the idea is if he's a ghost or a spirit, the fish would have plopped right to the ground. So they gave him something physical, and he digested that physical thing as a reminder that he is physically alive um, or physically risen from the dead. Uh, the next one I'm going to jump to is John chapter 20. Again, this is after he's risen from the dead. It says, They said to her, the angels, Woman, talking to Mary, Mary Magdalene, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The key thing I'm going to focus in on here is a slight mistranslation in our ESV, the ESV, which I'm reading from. In the Greek, the Greek, the, 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 the word construction would be better translated, not as do not cling to me, but stop clinging to me, would be the better translation. And so to say stop clinging to me is a way of suggesting that she is clinging, she's touching to him. So we have that he's grabbed, his feet has been grabbed hold of, Mary Magdalene um, had embraced, clung to him, and we have that he ate that piece of broiled fish right before him. It's a physical resurrection, and denial of a physical resurrection is contrary to Christianity. Uh, he ascended into heaven. This is you could read about the and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Uh, this language comes. Um, from in scripture, 
But the ascension itself is something that you could find recorded about in the first chapter of Acts and at the very end of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, sits at the right hand of the Father, God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come, the judge, the living, and the dead. And so we're talking about creeds here. A little. We're talking about, obviously, the creed. And the earliest existent creed, now this is not confessed in churches very much, but I can tell you it very much um, is in line with some of what we read, we say. This is taken from Acts, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15. So this is the first known creed. It says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, which, by the way, this is um, specifically quoted in the Nicene Creed, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, and most of all whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So there's, there's just the creed. That's just the second article of the creed. Now we're going to dig into the meaning of the creed. So this is what, so what does this mean? These words that we just said, what does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, also and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. Okay. Understand something. This is interesting. In the meaning of the creed, it says our Lord. We don't say the Lord, even though he is the Lord. But we say our Lord. And here in the meaning, my Lord. That means he's your master. That means when we confess this, we are confessing that he is the one that directs your life, directs who you are. That's where you find your identity as a child of of the one true God, all right? So to be your Lord means he is the one that you look to for you, everything. And so um, so there's that. And now when I say this, it's something we very, very much fail in regards to. We confess in there that he is true God and he is true man. Now this particular um, tension, this what we call the two natures of Christ has been the source of great division throughout the history of the church. All right. So Jesus is 100% God and 100% man 100% of the time. This has been the source of debate. People have for years, for since the start of the church have been trying to solve this dilemma. They're, so as I mentioned in a previous video, the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed, which was the Roman Creed, was written in response to Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that Jesus was merely human. The Nicene Creed was written in response to those who confessed that Jesus was, was man but not God. So this was the two this is these are two examples of a struggle with the two natures of Christ. Some have said, yeah, he's God, but he's not human. So this was the Gnostics. And then you have the Arians, which the Nicene Creed was written in reaction to, who said he was human, but he wasn't God. So there's two examples. There's also those who kind of do what has been known as been blender Jesus, kind of. They just take a little God, a little, God, a little man, throw it in, there's Jesus. Um you have kind of the 50-50 thing. Well, he's half God, half man. But that's, again, not that. So, Scripture describes him as being fully God. 
So the very nature of God, as Paul says in um, Philippians, he was very nature God. And but he's also very every he is man. He's hungry, he was thirsty, he got tired and went to sleep. You know, he did all he was very human and he died a human. But he's still God. But he's 100 percent God. There's not a point where you can say, well, right there, Jesus is being God, and right there, Jesus is being man. No, he's always God, he's always man. 100%, he's always 100% God or always 100% man. And how that works, I can't give you a good answer. And pretty much every time we try to solve this um, polarity, we get ourselves in trouble. And so many of the her heresies in the history of the church, um, the false teachings in the history of the church stem from this struggle with, is Jesus fully God, fully man, and how does that work? Is he just one or just the other? Or is it a little mixture? But what we got in Scripture, he is, he is presented as being 100% God. In Scripture, he is presented as being 100% human. How those two work together is a mystery and it's something that we can't comprehend in our human nature. We don't have the mind of God. We are not God. All right? So one of the things I would like to highlight here, uh, before I go dig too much farther into the meaning, in the second article of the Creed, one of the things that is of note is there is a division within the second article. So the first part, and I, I completely skipped over uh, source of controversy, and we come back. And this is actually a great time uh, to get to this controversy. So I'm going to jump to help me out with this little spot. I'm going to jump to the Book of Philippians, chapter two. So Philippians chapter two. We're going to. I'm going to jump into this in a little bit here. So the second article of the Creed can be divided into two stations of Jesus' life or states, parts of Jesus' uh, ministry, and that is the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. And so the state of humiliation would be this. Jesus, in Jesus Christ, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So humiliate it was not humiliation that he was born of the Virgin Mary. To be human is not bad. There's nothing wrong with being human. That's Gnostic teaching. So that wasn't the humiliation. The humiliation is that he, he was born of a he was born in the in a world affected by sin and into a sin fallen world, and so he became obedient to the law. So, as it says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent. Um, sent forth his son to be born of a woman born under the law, and that is the humiliation. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. So that is his state of humiliation. Then comes the line of controversy, and that is he descended into hell. And this is a line that there are even some churches will cut it out in their creed. And part of the reason is it's because um, you only see it's uh, it was not in the early Apostles' Creed. It was something that was added fairly late, and it is up to dispute. There's basically one verse that speaks to this, and I'm gonna. Um, I mean, granted, part of it comes out of the Apocrypha, uh, but here's the verse that most directly deals with this. So this is um, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we begin at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm going to come back to that later. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not disobey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. All right, so very specifically, he went and proclaimed in the spirits in prison. 
this little line is the line that predominantly inspires the line, he descended into hell. Now, it is true that Jesus, it is easier to go to, when we say that Jesus descended to hell, this is not when he was damned. To be damned means to be rejected by God. That happened on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at that moment, Jesus was damned, all right, in the literal sense of that word. To be damned means to be rejected by God, to be abandoned by God. And we're going to deal with that a little bit more later. But that's, so that's when he was, that's when he was damned. But that's not when he descended into hell. His descent into hell, as you notice, it says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The way I thought this was well explained to understand what is going on when he descended into hell is imagine it's Super Bowl Sunday, all right? And the game just finished. And the winning team is in the locker room. They're celebrating. They're pouring champagne on one another. They're cheering like, yeah, we're the chips. They're getting calls from the president, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, they get a, the head coach, the opposing team, walks in. He comes in and he says, listen up, guys. Uh, they just replayed the last play of the game. You fumbled. We recovered. We won the game. See you later. That is kind of what's going on when Jesus descended into hell. See, the devil is, Satan has an ego unlike no other. And yes, the devil is real. Something I didn't really cover much in that first article, and maybe this is a time to talk about, it, is the subject of angels. So when we say that God created all things visible and invisible, we confess this in the Nicene Creed. Um, this includes angels. So angels are beings that God created. Angel literally means messenger. There's many different kinds of angels. There's your kind of Gabriel-type angels, the angels that were there um, when Jesus was risen from the dead, the one that's saying to the shepherds. There's also the seraphim. You could read about them in Isaiah 6. They're worshiping the Lord high and exalted on his throne, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Um, you know, the cherubim, which is another type of angels. So, but there's also angels that have fallen, angels who rejected God. And the chief amongst those angels is Lucifer or Satan. Lucifer is the fallen, is the angel who fell, the angel who reject, who um, tried to create an uprising to overthrow God, and therefore he was thrown down. And so this is Satan. This is the devil. All right. So when the see, so if you're talking about somebody who thinks that he can overthrow God, that shows the kind of ego he has. And so it would not be a stretch to say that he was celebrating when Jesus was crucified, thinking, yeah, I did it. I defeated the Son of God. But Jesus descended to hell was him to go and preach and proclaim to the devil, to the demons, and tell them, guess what? You failed. You lost. I won. And that is what it is. It's a moment of victory. And so this is part of the state of exaltation. And so this is where Philippians 2 comes into play. Philippians 2 speaks, so the state of exaltation would be, so he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is the state of exaltation. So the idea of humiliation and exaltation comes from Philippians 2, where it says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And by the way, that's a verse worthy of another conversation. Um, as Christians, we're supposed to deny ourselves, submit ourselves to one another, uh, look upon the interests of others. The scriptures speak a lot about um how we're not supposed to concern only for ourselves, but for others. But anyways, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled or he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's humiliation. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is that is above every name. So there you go. Exaltation, humiliation, right in that text. And that's where that idea of state of exaltation, state of humiliation comes from, because Paul kind of lays it out there in, for, in Philippians chapter 2. And the creed lays out with a state of humiliation to start the second half state of exaltation. So continue. So going back to the meaning. So I believe that Jesus Christ has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence and blessedness. Just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. So when I went through the old the Ten Commandments, that was pure law. And if you read it, it is ultimately condemning you, showing you the way that you have failed and fallen short of what God demands from you. Who demands he demands from you perfection. He so you can't say, well, you know, I may have, I may not be as bad as other people, but I've you know, I do my good, but I'm not I'm not as bad as this person or that person. I have my faults, but I'm not awful. No, actually, you are. We are lost and condemned creatures. There is no one good, not even one, Paul writes in Romans. So, and you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells you that the demand, that what God demands is perfection. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And understand, in the first century, when they heard those words, the Pharisees and the scribes were considered the models of righteousness. And so to hear that your righteousness must be greater than theirs would terrify the conscience, because they would know the Ten Commandments, and they know that they are nowhere close to demanding God's meeting God's demands. And, in fact, after Jesus said this, he went into the Ten Commandments, and he began to expand and make and intensify the commandments. So before it was just, you should not murder, but now he's telling you, you can't even say, don't even say bad things about your neighbor. And that's that would be murder in your heart. Don't, you know, it says, do not commit adultery. You, you should not look lustfully. So you look at it and you show that you are, we are deep, we are rotten, we are broken, we are wretched. We, there is nothing good in us. So this is what Paul says in Romans 3 to give you an idea as to what our, our, our status is before God. It says, it says, what then? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We already charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whoever the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested fasted apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall in G and fall short of the glory of God. Now I'm stopping there 
And as you notice, as I've laid out, the hit the this is what the scripture says about our nature before God. We are wretched. Nothing good. And yet, this is so I'm going to come back to this passage from Romans 13 because it'll hold relevance later. But I'm going to jump to um, 1 Peter chapter 1. So, as I read those verses, this is what. I was, I was reading those words from Luther's meaning that he purchased not with silver or gold, but with his holy innocent suffering and death. This is where it comes from. This is um, this is taken from First Peter, and I'm going to begin at uh, verse six, verse fourteen. It says, "Obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct." Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So there you go. From with his suffering and death, with his precious, the precious blood of Christ, you are redeemed. Even in one of the great prophecies, and this is actually echoing. Uh, the great one of the great prophecies regarding Jesus. So this is Isaiah 52, beginning of verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, then they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now here's the key here to this theme about redemption. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment. Excuse me. Excuse me. He was by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as far as, as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he, ha he has done no violence and there's no deceit in his mouth. So there, he has no sin. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. 
He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, but the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted righteous, and he shall bear their, <coughs> their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This gets this passage gets quoted in the scriptures. Uh, we actually read this also in, um, in the book of Acts when Philip Philip um, comes across the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch. He is reading this very passage and he confirms that this the deacon Philip. Here's this, and he's like, hey, this is, who does he speak about? Is it someone else or himself? And he affirms that this is speaking of Jesus. And we read this, and there is an argument that comes out of certain church tradi Christian traditions and question whether or not they're Christian based on this confession. But there's a statement that is said that they call this divine child abuse. So they said, no, no, God didn't do this. You're not saved by the death of Jesus. No, no, that's not. That'd be divine child abuse. But they also miss what Jesus says himself in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the good shepherd. I my, I lay my life down for my sheep. Here, I'll actually, here, I'm going to read straight up from this. From John chapter 10. So I don't want to misquote it. So... Says I, he says here in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, and I make that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So right there, Jesus is telling you he does it of his own accord, his own will. And you have to understand that the will of the Father and the Son are one. All right? This is part of the Trinity. So this whole idea of divine child abuse doesn't work when the Son, when Jesus willingly did this. All right? So, uh, going back to that Romans 3 passage, I read before, previously, I said, I read, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it continues. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And I'm going to jump forward a little bit even more to Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So it's by his death, by his shed blood on the cross, you are redeemed. All right? And I know there are church bodies that reject this, even though scripture is very plainly saying it. 
Um, first John chapter two, he says, my little children, I'm writing here. Actually, I'll jump, go backwards. It says, if we walk in the light, so he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, and by his blood. So, and there's many more passages I could go to over and over, talking about how by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, he has brought redemption and salvation. So not with silver or gold. And uh, and I want to talk next in the next one even more into how someone is saved. But understand that this salvation, this forgiveness, is given to you as a free gift. This salvation is 100% God's work. And again, I'm going to deal with this more with the third article of the creed. But this is what Jesus has done. We covered through the, the commandments. And what I said today, we are sinners. We are we cannot stand before Christ. But by his blood, by his dying on the cross, while we you were still a sinner, you have salvation. You are declared righteous by his blood, by grace through faith. So I'm going to come back to this again in the next video when we deal with the third article, the creed, because it very much has an overlap. So see you in the next video.